0: Father we, are, um, Father, we are eager to hear from your word this morning. I pray that you would use it, Father, that it would not return void, but it would have uh, its purpose accomplished this morning in me and in uh, this body. Father, would you use this now in Jesus' name? Amen. Uh, could you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Um, uh, those notes that you have in front of you, you can just turn them over uh, I haven't. I won't be using Randy's outline, um, but Second Corinthians chapter four is where we'll be this morning. Um, this morning, I want to answer this question: What kind of man or woman does God use to build His church? Who does He choose to accomplish His purposes? Uh, does He choose the most eloquent or educated man or woman? Or does he have different qualifications? That's the question. Who does God choose? Our passage today reveals that God has an entirely different strategy than our own for building his church, and quite unexpected. Rather than choosing his servants from the cream of the crop, he chooses us from the bottom of the barrel, uh, at least in the world's eyes. So uh, Paul's teaching here in 2 Corinthians is autobiographical, He's talking about himself as he writes. And let me just explain just a little bit of context here. So uh, one of the major themes in 2 Corinthians is Paul's defense of his apostleship. So Paul had come to the Corinthian church, he had left, and after he had left, false teachers had come in who were denying um, uh, Paul's credibility. They were saying he's not a true teacher uh, for these reasons. And one of the, some of the main reasons that these false teachers gave was, uh, look at Paul's weakness, his physical uh, weaknesses. He's not uh, strong, he's not tall, uh, he's not handsome, um, he's not uh, strong in his physical strength. Their other charge against him was he wasn't eloquent, he can't speak very well. These false teachers were the celebrities of the day, they were the philosophers, they were well-versed in oratory, and Paul had none of that. You could see in, in, in chapter 10, verse 10, charge, the, these are their charges against him in chapter 10, verse 10. Paul, they say against Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, so he writes like he's a strong man, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. That's what they were saying about Paul. Um, if you didn't see him, you'd think he's this big guy. But when you see him, uh, he can't be a true servant of God. Listen to us instead. So Paul's response here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is unexpected, and it's hope-giving for you and I who have the same weakness that Paul does. Uh, Rather than uh, denying these charges of weakness, uh, he actually accepts them and embraces them as qualifications to be a true minister of the gospel so with that as our background let's go ahead and read the text Uh, if you would stand with me while i read uh, to honor god's word i'm going to start in verse one of chapter four i'm going to read through verse 12 verse one therefore since we have this ministry as we have received as we as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death works in us, but life in you. Amen. You can be seated. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 12, and in these verses, Paul shows us God's plan for building his church with three unexpected components. Okay, and I'm going to give you these a little bit more deliberately since you don't have them in front of you, but these are the three kind of headings we'll work through. But God chooses, number one, unexpected messengers, and he uses them In unexpected means, that's point number two, unexpected means to make an unexpected impact. And I'll I'll walk through those again, but um, God chooses unexpected messengers using unexpected means to make an unexpected impact. So look with me now at verse seven. As we first consider these unexpected messengers that God chooses to build his church But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. God's messengers are earthen vessels, pots of clay. He uses common, ordinary vessels to store a treasure of vast wealth. And before we really can understand how shocking that is, we need to understand what this treasure is that Paul is saying God has put into these common vessels. So looking at the context, just back up one verse, verse 6. What is the treasure? Look in verse 6. The treasure is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Well, what exactly is that? Go back even further to verse 4, and you see a similar statement that's a little bit more clarifying. Verse 4, at the end of verse 4, the God of the world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The light, the treasure, is very simply the gospel message. Very simply. The gospel message. It's the message that God loves you so much that even when you were his enemy, he sent his son to die for you. That's the gospel message. That's the treasure. That's the light. And the reason why Paul calls it a treasure is because it's of a priceless Value You cannot put a monetary value on that message. Um, The question is, let me just ask you a question. If you could obtain forgiveness of sins, if you had to pay money to obtain forgiveness of sins, how much money would you pay for that? To be forgiven of all of your sins, adopted by the Father, uh, betrothed to Christ, your husband, How much money would you pay for that? To live eternally with God? The answer is anything and everything that you owned, you would pay willingly and give up uh, to be with Christ. That's why Paul calls it a treasure. And uh, we have this value explained so well in those two parables, the parable of the treasure hidden in a field, the parable of the pearl of great price, right? The man finds a buried treasure and he goes with joy and sells everything he has to buy the field so he can have this treasure. And the the merchant looking for pearls finds this one pearl of great price and sells everything with joy to have this pearl. It's it's the best that we can do to give a monetary price on the gospel, the forgiveness of sins for sinners who, who have no other way of being saved. It's a fortune beyond calculation, beyond calculation. So where does God choose to put this treasure? Well, again, just look back in verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. While you and I would put a treasure like this in Fort Knox, okay, if you, have, if you, had, if you had $100 million in your home, where would you put it? You would not put it in a clay pot. You'd put it in the most secure place you could find it. And yet, that's not where God has put his message. It's not where God has put Christ, the gospel. He's put it in jars of clay. Let me just explain a little bit what these jars of clay are. So at the time that Paul wrote this, these jars of clay would have been exactly what you're picturing. Just common, ordinary, inexpensive, easily breakable, uh, easily replaceable objects. Pots of clay, right? (laughs) Okay, Um, they were the paper plates of the ancient world. Okay, (laughs) if you have a paper plate and you and you accidentally break your paper plate, you would not repair it. You would not try to tape it back together. You would throw it away and buy a new one. It's common, ordinary. You also wouldn't put your paper plate up on your mantle and display it for your guests to see. Okay, it's these clay pots were common and ordinary. They were not. Um, uh, something to be put on a pedestal. They were not something to even be repaired if they were broken. Just throw it away, get a new one. Paul knew that that is exactly what he was. He and you are a pot of clay, nothing spectacular to look at. Okay, Um, Compared with the popular philosophers and these false teachers of the day, Paul had no reputation in the elite world. he had, he had no value, and in fact, uh, this was not uh, in fact, uh, he was not eloquent either, uh, but yet this was god 's chosen instrument. Paul was god 's chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles, right? Paul said, "This is my man, this is the one i 'm going to take the gospel to the Gentiles." This was not the first time that God had chosen to work through someone weak uh, in the history of the Bible, right? This is God's consistent pattern of working throughout the whole Bible whenever he wants to send the message or build his church. Just consider these people. Moses, he couldn't speak well. Gideon and David were the youngest of their brothers. Solomon was young and inexperienced. Rahab was a harlot Ruth was a Moabite. Jeremiah was too young. The disciples were uneducated fishermen, despised in the world's eyes. Levi was a tax collector, and Timothy was timid. These men were not the elite, and women were not the elite people of society, and yet they were the ones that God chose to take the gospel. They were not the celebrities of the day, and God still works this way, right? Just look around. Yeah, I can see all of you up here. <laughs> so I know this is true, but just look around, right? 1 <laughs> Corinthians 1, that was read at the beginning. 1 Corinthians 1, um, 27, 20, uh, 26. Consider your calling. This is you. Consider your calling. Not many of you are wise, not many of you are mighty, not many of you are noble, but rather God has chosen the weak, the foolish, and the despised to shame, in the world's eyes, to shame the strong, mighty, and noble in the world's eyes, so that no man may boast. No man may boast. Okay, and I'm not excluded from that list, (laughs) Why in the world did God choose us to go to Uganda? I mean, this. Anyways, um, um, there are there are men much uh, less fearful than me, and yet God has chosen a fearful, weak man to go to Uganda. Well, why does He do that? Uh, you can just see in the text. Look at verse seven. You see that phrase? There's a comma. So that very helpful, very easy to understand. Why does God do this? Why does He choose earthen vessels? So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. That's the reason why. Okay, that's why God chooses from the bottom of the barrel. Because if He chose, if every uh, if, if every NBA player were a Christian. Then the world would think, oh, wow, uh, God chooses, uh, th- that man must have been a really uh, important man that, that God chose him. That's why God chose him to be a Christian, uh, because that man is uh, influential. Uh, if that man, were, uh, that man has a broad audience, he can convert many people. Uh, no, he doesn't. The NBA is not full of Christians, right? The celebrities in Hollywood, almost none of them are Christians. God has chosen rather weak. Uh, foolish, despised people in the world's eyes to carry his message so that he gets the glory. That's why we... So that we give him the credit when he uses us. If you would just turn uh, to 1 Corinthians... Sorry for flipping back and forth. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I just want you to see this. This is a consistent theme. I had never seen this before. Well, I imagine Paul... I imagined him to be a very strong, roaring lion of a man. And, he's, and he wasn't. Let me, I just want you to see this from his own mouth or pen, as it were. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Listen to this, verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You ever thought about that? That Paul was trembling with fear? I had never seen that before. Verse 4. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that... Your faith would not rest in the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. Okay, it's the same message. So this is Paul's, um, unexpe- Sorry, this is God's uh, unexpected strategy for building His church. That He places this gospel treasure of unfathomable value into worthless, despised, weak clay pots so that he gets all the glory and we don't keep any for ourselves. So that was point number one. I'm trying to help you here. Point number two is God's unexpected means. So having seen in verse uh, seven, the unexpected messenger, Paul goes on to explain the unexpected means or uh, avenue or uh, plan that God has for building his church through these people. And this is verses 8 through 11. So rather than selecting a man or woman for his service and then elevating their ministry and prospering them and making them influential, okay, he subjects this man or woman to continual affliction and suffering. That's God's plan for how to build his church. And just look with me in the first two verses, verses 8 and 9. We are are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. In these two verses, Paul explains what life is like as a clay pot. What did, Paul, what is it like to be a clay pot uh, uh, containing this treasure? Well, it's very hard, Paul says, It's very hard. Uh, It's painful. Paul uses four pairs of antithetical statements. Do you see that in the text? Four pairs separated by commas, okay? And these uh, statements are increasing in their severity. Afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. And even, this is the pinnacle, even struck down but not destroyed. I just want to take these one at a time. Afflicted, the word afflicted just means pressed down, feeling pressure from all around. Paul was constantly pressured, afflicted in his ministry wherever he went with no relief. And yet, but not crushed. This term means um, completely fenced in or without an escape route. Paul was saying he was constantly under pressure and yet never was without an escape route to endure the affliction. And this obviously reminds us of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God does not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but he always provides a way of escape with the temptation. Secondly, Paul was perplexed. Perplexed. This is just very extremely honest from Paul. Uh, He was discouraged he was unsure, questioning why. He was depressed, discouraged. Uh, his ministry was one of continual abandonment. His allies in ministry would leave him, and that would cause him perplexion. Why? And he would be discouraged, and yet not fully and finally perplexed, not um, lost to the nth degree, not uh, despairing finally and fully the third pair there, um, again, Paul is just increasing the affliction as he describes it. The third uh, point there is persecuted. This word here uh, means like hunting an animal. And you see that when you read Acts. Paul was literally persecuted, hunted like an animal from town to town as he would spread the gospel. The, the, his enemies from the previous town would follow him to wherever he went. Paul was constantly persecuted. And yet, not forsaken, not forsaken, and this is—I mean, has to be one of the sweetest promises in the in the Bible for the believer. God has said, "Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you." Jesus, some of his last words on the on the uh, when he came back to his disciples said, "I am with you always, to the ends of the age." What? greater promise do you need to endure persecution than knowing that God is with you no matter what you are in. Um, one, of, one of my favorite missionaries is John Patton. He's written an autobiography that you have to read. Uh, John Patton went to a, 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 basically an island inhabited by cannibals uh, that really had not heard the gospel at all before. And uh, he went there. People told him not to go uh, because he would die almost immediately. Uh, but he went, and within four months of him landing there, his newly married wife and his only child died. He was completely alone on the island, surrounded by cannibals who had never heard the gospel, constantly at war with one another. The promise from Christ that I will never leave you um, is the one thing that sustained him for decades of ministry on the island, though he was alone, yet never alone. And it's, it's the same promises that you and I need, right? Um, finally, you see the fourth affliction there was uh, struck down. This is a term... Uh, to be laid low or knocked down to the ground from like a weapon or an illness. Uh, In boxing terms, this would be like like knocked down to the ground. And yet, Paul says, not destroyed. In other words, he was knocked down to the ground but not knocked out. Um, And we see this, don't we? Don't we see this in Paul's ministry? That he was stoned, literally stoned and left for dead. He may have even died. Literally stoned and left for dead. His enemies went away. And Paul got up <laughs> and went back into the city and began preaching the gospel again. It doesn't happen for. It, it doesn't happen for all of God's children, a remarkable miracle like that. Um, but this is the unshakable hope of the Christian that though we are delivered over to death every day, we are not utterly forsaken or lost by our Father. And though we may even die a martyr's death, God's not promising here to save us from every physical death. Uh, God, but Paul, even Paul himself would later end his life in a martyr's death, right? But death only ends in a reward as we're taken to our Father to see Christ face to face. No amount of affliction that you and I experience could ever separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ. Romans 8, right? What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, not even persecution, affliction, uh, uh, or, or even martyrdom. So taken as a whole here, these these four uh, pairs, Paul's point is simple. The life of a clay pot is one of continual suffering, continual affliction, The pot is ever at the point of breaking, right? It's always at the point of being crushed, and yet it never does. Though clay pots were known for being extremely frail, uh, this pot never breaks, though it's subjected to pressure from every side. That's the question. Why does the pot not break? Why does God allow his people to endure suffering so much, Very simply, this is the answer. We'll see it in the text. Very simply, the triumph of God's people through affliction is what he uses to show the world his power. And you see that in verse 10 and 11. Look with me now, 10 and 11. We are always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Those words, so that, are so helpful, aren't they? And you see that Paul repeats that phrase almost exactly twice. The same phrase, so that, explaining why you and I, why Paul was being constantly given over to affliction and suffering. Paul makes it clear that when we experience suffering and affliction, we're experiencing the same thing that Christ did. When we are uh, persecuted, struck down, afflicted, uh, God's enemies are doing the same thing to you and I that, are happen- that were happening to him. Jesus would say, a servant is not greater than his master, right? If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. That's why Paul says we are caring about in our body the dying of Jesus, uh, we're just showing the world what they had already done to Jesus. But why? Well, look at that now. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. Manifested just means shown. Okay? So that the eternal, undestroyable uh, life, the Spirit of Christ in us, is shown in this constant affliction Paul repeats this twice, just in case we didn't get the message the first time. You're saying that I have to endure suffering to show the life of Christ in me. Isn't there another way to show the life of Christ in me? Paul says it twice, as if to say, no, there's no other way that the world will see the life of Christ in you unless you endure tremendous affliction and are not destroyed by it. And it's, it's as if the one cannot happen without the other, right? The suffering must come first if, if the life of Christ in you is to be seen. Just to use the analogy that Paul uses, it's as if this light inside the clay pot, it's as if the light can't be seen unless the pot is first stressed and pressed so that stress cracks appear and the light is able to shine through the cracks that are in the pot. And these, pot, these cracks are what shows the life of Christ. So what does this look like in real life? Uh, it looks like Job. Okay? It looks like Job sitting in his ash heap, scraping his boils, having lost everything. And yet what does Job do? He worships God. It looks like Stephen. Stephen being stoned at the end of his life. What are the last words that Stephen says? Okay. He says, forgive them. Father, don't hold this against them. How could Stephen say that? Just a more modern example, it looks like Elizabeth Elliot, you know the story, Jim Elliot, age 30 uh, or 29, uh, was killed, okay, bringing the gospel, a pioneer missionary, bringing the gospel, and he was killed almost immediately upon contact. And what did his wife do? <laughs> okay. She took the gospel back to the same people who had killed her husband, so um, that's God's design for these clay pots, okay? The world sees uh, these clay pots who have endured so much suffering and yet have not thrown in the towel, have not been destroyed, and they ask, how on earth has that clay pot not been crushed by that enormous burden? And that's when you and I say, we would have been were it not for the resurrected spirit of Christ inside of me, giving me hope that one day I will see him face to face. Uh, so that's, that's the unexpected means that God has for building his church, is affliction. And finally, I want you to see um, the unexpected impact that, that, these, that we have uh, as we proclaim the gospel. So he chooses unexpected messengers, these clay pots. He subjects us to, uh, he has an unexpected means for us to proclaim the gospel, affliction, and it has an unexpected impact. I want you to turn to verse 12, or look at verse 12. So, in conclusion, death works in us, but life in you. Paul concludes this section in a somewhat surprising way. Based on, uh, I mean, he's been using this analogy of life and death, life and death, light and darkness, light and blindness. Based on these previous verses, we would expect Paul to say, death works in us, or me, but life also works in me. Okay, that's what he just said in verses 10 and 11, that I'm carrying the body, uh, in, in my body, the dying of Jesus, but I'm also carrying in my body the life of Jesus. But Paul says, death is working in me, but life is working in you, the Corinthians, the ones that Paul was writing to. In other words, Paul is saying that the suffering that God was putting in Paul's life was meant to bring spiritual life to the Corinthians. That was the impact. That was the design of the suffering that Paul went through was to bring life to others. Paul had the treasure. Paul had the light inside of him. God afflicted him to send the light, send the gospel, to produce life in the people who saw him. Paul was a sacrificial servant who would do anything. You just think about the other things Paul has written. Paul would, do, would have done anything, no matter the pain, to see life produced in the people he was teaching, right? Uh, Romans 9, Paul says, I wish that I was accursed and afflicted for the sake of my brothers. That was Paul's life of sacrificial service. And yet he learned that from Christ, right, who was the ultimate sacrificial servant, He didn't come, Christ didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, right? It just reminds me of the the centurion. You remember uh, Mark chapter 13, I wrote it down here. Uh, At the end, the very end of Jesus' crucifixion, when he died, the centurion saw the manner in which Christ died and said, truly, this was the Son of God, Literally, in that moment, the death of Christ brought life to the centurion, in that moment. So I just, let me just ask you, do you have that perspective on your suffering? Um, if you don't, uh, I'm certain it's more difficult for you to endure suffering. But knowing that the suffering God is doing in me is for someone else, for producing spiritual life in someone else, gives you an incredible amount of endurance, Let me just give you one example. Um, I I, I know a mother uh, who lost an adult son uh, suddenly and without warning, okay? And the death of this son had an enormous impact. Uh, He was 30. The death of this son had an enormous impact on his peers, sudden and unexpected. As a result of his death, the family knows of at least three people as a direct result of his death. At least three people who repented and trusted in Christ because of seeing um, the manner in which he died, the manner in which the family praised God, though he, though they lost their son. At least three people, and I, I asked this mother um, a couple years after it happened how she was doing, and this is what she said. Um, she said, um, if the death of my son caused at least one person to be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, it was worth it. (laughs) Can Can you say that? Could you say that about the death of your son or your grandson or your daughter? Would you say that? If you knew, as long as you knew that he or she was a Christian, this mother knew where her son was. She knew she would see him again um, and uh, was joyful that God used his death to bring more into the kingdom. Um, so this is the unexpected impact. This is the unexpected impact that, that God uses uh, to build his church. So let me, uh, let me just close here with, with one exhortation to you uh, and one uh, encouragement to you, okay? One exhortation and one encouragement. So uh, first, look at, look at verse 7. Uh, Paul makes it clear that not everyone has this treasure, okay? Paul says, we have this treasure. Why does Paul have it? Paul has the treasure because in verse 6, God shown into his heart. Does everyone have this treasure? no. Paul says in verses three and four that the gospel is veiled. Some are blind to the gospel. So let me just ask you, do you have the gospel treasure inside of you? You say, I think I do. (laughs) How do I know? Okay, well, let me give you a litmus test. Look at verse seven again. What does Paul call the gospel? He calls it a treasure. Why does Paul call it a treasure? Because of how much he loved Christ, because of how much he, how thankful he was, how much he realized um, the gospel had done for him. So let me just ask you this is the litmus test. Would you use the word treasure to describe Christ? We often ask the question, do you know the gospel? That's not a good question. (laughs) Even the demons know the gospel, right? question is, do you know the gospel, and do you treasure the gospel? Do you love Christ? Are you thankful for what God has done? Do you realize that you are a sinner, and are you thankful and treasure Christ above all else for what he has done for you? Would you gladly, with joy, leave everything, if Christ asked you to, to have him and him alone? Uh, let, me, let me share these words with you from Luke 14. Uh, these are some of the hard words of Christ. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Christ said that. None of you can be my disciple. So what's he saying? Well, it's not a mandate for every one of you to disown your family and leave and sell all your possessions. That's not what Christ is getting at. He's getting at your treasure. What do you treasure in your life? Are there things you treasure more than Christ? If so, Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. (laughs) If God took your home or your health, would you still treasure him? If God took your wife or your husband, would you still treasure him? If he took your children or your grandchildren, would you still treasure Christ? Those who treasure Christ will say with David, Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is no one, nothing on earth I desire besides you. That's what Christ is getting at when he says, you must give up all your possessions to be my disciple. Because you see, there's not two different types of Christians, right? There's not normal Christians. And then there are uh, advanced Christians who go to Uganda, okay? Because that's, that's not me. I'm not in that category. I'm in the normal Christian category. That's what Paul is saying. There is nothing special about me. I am a clay pot the definition of a disciple is a singular devotion to Christ forsaking all else possessions and people for this if he asks you to follow him so just let me let me ask you a question just another litmus question if Christ asked you to go to uganda would you go yes or no would you go <laughs> it's a very easy question uh I'm not saying everyone's called to go to Uganda. He's not saying that. I'm not saying that, okay? So I'll put that caveat in there. But if he asks you to go, would you go? If you say no, what is the reason why? Is there something you love more than Christ? Is there something you fear more than obedience to Christ? Are you afraid of malaria and mosquitoes? Uh, Perhaps you idolize comfort and health more than following Christ. Are you afraid of losing your children and your grandchildren? Perhaps you idolize your children or grandchildren more than your love for Christ. And I'm not saying that we are not afraid of malaria mosquitoes. We are terrified. We are terrified of... um, I mean, there's no 911 there. Who do you call? (laughs) Um, That is the entire point. God does not choose people who are not fearful. He doesn't choose people who are not weak. Okay, he chooses people who are weak, fearful, but who will obey him okay, at, because he has changed you. He has changed us. So that's the question. Do you treasure Christ above all else? Is Christ your first love or do you have other loves, competing loves? If so, you either may not be a disciple Or you may have idols that you need to repent of. And the the solution is the same. Whether you are not sure if you're a disciple or you have competing loves, the solution is repent. Ask God to restore his preeminence in your life, his devotion to him as first and foremost above all else. Uh, Ask him to do that. Uh, Well, let me end on an encouragement here. Um, for those of you who see Christ, treasure Christ, love Christ above all else, uh, just a few things. First of all, be reminded that God delights in using the runt of the litter to build his church. Okay, so have you been asked, has has uh, Jason asked you to do some ministry here at Calvary that you say, no way, I can't do that, I'm not gifted in that way. Okay, just know <laughs> Uh, there is almost no one who has been asked to do something who says, yes, I'm the man for the job. I'm prepared for this. I've studied all my life for this task, okay? Uh, just know that God uses weak people who are fearful to build his church, okay? So with boldness then, you faithfully say, yes, I will do that, though I am scared, trusting God to strengthen me so that he gets all the glory when something good is produced out of this effort. second thing I just want you to remember is that God has promised never to leave you and never to forsake you. Okay, just remember that. God has promised never to leave you, never to forsake you. Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. God never left Job, even though everything was taken from him. Um. And just remember that God, third thing is, remember that God uses your suffering to spread spiritual life to others who are watching you. Okay? So let that be an encouragement for endurance as you suffer constantly affliction uh, from every side. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, for this word. Father, we thank you that you have said that you will never leave us and never forsake us. Jesus, you have said that you are with us always, even to the ends of the age. Pray, Father, that you would strengthen this body, this dear body of brothers and sisters. I pray that you would uh, call uh, some, Father, who think they are strong this morning. Pray that you would show them their weakness. I pray that you would um, humble their pride. I pray that you would save some, Father. I pray that that you would um, make Christ more valuable and treasured uh, in these people, in myself, Father, me first. Um, Make Christ more treasured in us uh, than anything, Father. And would you show us, Father, would you reveal to us competing loves that we have? Um, And would you help us, Father, uh, to treasure Christ more? I pray in his name, amen.